open arms towards the sun You feel the warmth of the rays And then you know you're alive And you don't have to be afraid Of anything cause you know You know the truth and the truth The truth is love, yes it is Wasn't what they said to you Or anything that you learn From a book or from the news It's not like that cause it's a thing It is something that you do Hello everyone, this is Jeremiah Hosea. Welcome to The Baseline. This is a special edition of The Baseline, you might say. I had the pleasure of interviewing Brooke Jackson on Friday, and you might have noticed that show was not uploaded Monday, which is a first. We had a technical problem. The show was not recorded for some mysterious reason. It's never happened before. But it's given me a chance to meditate a little bit and think about what I learned in my first interview with Brooke, and we're basically going to give it another go. Brooke is kind enough to join me this Tuesday afternoon, and we're going to discuss her case and other things. And I think it's really important that we get the word out about what she witnessed, what she experienced, and the case, Brooke Jackson versus Pfizer, which is really not discussed enough considering the magnitude of what was revealed. So, Brooke, thank you, first of all, for joining me again. I really appreciate you taking the time. And um, I'm really excited to do our replay interview, our uh, take two, if you there will. There you go. I was going to say that. Take two. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me again. It, it's, um, it was nice to talk to you just kind of before before we started recording. Just Yeah, absolutely. Out. You're a super cool person. I could tell that you right too. away. <laughs> And uh, yeah, that's it's actually been a wonderful thing. I have to say, I've met a lot of really wonderful people through the medical freedom movement. It sort of reshuffled the deck a little bit. You lose friends, you meet new friends. And, uh, you know, the new friends are so valuable because we realize some of, of the same things. That have yeah, that's, a good, that's a good point. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I definitely so, have have met some amazing people. And, you know, I guess that's that's probably one of the top things that I'm going to take away um, from all of this is just the people that I've met. Um, you know, my, I, I feel like my heart's gotten bigger, um, especially through, through the people you mentioned earlier, Danielle. Um, yeah. there's so many people that I've met that I just, I just want to help them. And, uh, you know, you, you think your government would want to do that too, but that's not where we're at. So callous. I mean, the callousness that's been displayed is unimaginable. So I wanted to start off the way we did live on Friday, which is, can you just mention, and of course, I already know the answer, but um, to what extent have you been interviewed by major media, by corporate media, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, have any of those networks had you on for an interview? I have not. No. Um, but not, not from a lack of trying on my part. I've, I've emailed them. Um, I've reached out on Twitter or X now and no, I, I haven't been interviewed by anybody mainstream. It's just been, you know, I, I feel like brave and courageous independent journalists like yourself, um, who've taken the time to understand just how big this story is. Um, not to, 
brag or anything. There's certainly nothing to brag about. No, but... it's objectively a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, and and that that kind of went on. That that went on. It's still going on, obviously. But I feel like there was a little breakthrough about maybe six months ago. I did have one. What I would consider mainstream uh, reporter reach out to me for an interview, and that was. Oh gosh, he's a he's a personality on Fox News. Oh, come on, help me out here, Jeremiah. Uh, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> no, he took a, no. Uh, no, I did reach out to I did reach out to Tucker. He didn't uh, return any of my emails. Um, That's strange. Gutenberg. Uh, I don't no, know. No, uh, Jesse Waters. Apologies. Oh, okay. Jesse Waters uh, production crew did reach out to me for an interview and I just, it was probably my mood because maybe I was moody this day. I don't know, but I thought, you know what, how many times have I reached out to you guys over the years trying to get the story out and you've had no interest at all. And now, now you, now you want to talk to me. That's great. But I, I just didn't feel like I, I wanted to, to give them the time, you know, I, I could find somebody else, um, you know, in our, our movement to do the interview and, you know, help them out. Cause you know, so many of, of you guys have lost your jobs or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then now I, I'm kind of kicking myself because for so long, my mission was to just get the information out. If people just understood how these clinical trials were run, maybe it would give them pause, you know, to, to potentially reconsider taking the shot. Um, so now I'm kicking myself. So maybe maybe he'll have me back on one day or my attorneys, you know, either one of them, Robert Barnes or, or uh, Warner Mendenhall would, would be great. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But no, that's but, a that's that's a good question. No, no, no mainstream media other than that. No CNN. You know, no. it's actually interesting. A, a great Substacker and someone who I consider a hero in all of this. Actually, my next Substack or a forthcoming Substack is a written interview with the great Mark Crispin Miller, the NYU professor who was maligned for uh just asking some basic questions and, and encouraging his students to do some basic questioning of what was going on. And they quickly uh, went after him. And, um, you know, there's a whole story about that. But he recently made a good point, which is he doesn't use the term mainstream media because he feels that their agenda is increasingly not mainstream. And that's sort of their goal is to turn sort of odd ideas and odd concepts into a mainstream concept, which they're not. So I think that's an interesting thing. Yeah, it is. Corporate media. You know, they're just, they're corporate media. They're they're not mainstream. They're pretending they're mainstream, but we shouldn't give them that credit probably. You're absolutely right. He is absolutely right. (laughs) Yeah. Good point. So let's, uh, Let's talk about um, quickly before we get into some of what you observed that led to this very significant court case. Um, what is your background again as a clinical research professional? I and mean, you're a an auditor as well, right? What are your credentials yeah, in that? Yeah. Very experienced. So, <laughs> well, it, it was mainly through just on on the job experience. My my degree is in business administration, and I was considering um, 
go into pharmacy school. And then that that kind of that kind of changed um, when I became involved in a clinical trial. I was actually a, a participant and got um, got offered a position with a gastroenterologist at our teaching hospital or teaching school here. It's the uh, UT Southwestern Medical School here in in Texas, and uh, started working as a a coordinator. You can think of a coordinator as almost like a medical assistant. Um, so I started uh, coordinating clinical trials in, in gastroenterology and, and in hepatology, and then quickly moved moved up through through the ranks, I guess, and became a clinical trial manager and a director of operations for a very similar company to the one that we're going to talk about, Ventavia, and in in my director position. I just, it was, I'd, I'd been at this position for about, I don't know, it was close to, close to five years or so. And when COVID um, became a thing, I was traveling so much and working so much and, you know, working on the, the PCR machines and the, um, you know, testing and validating those. And to be honest, I was just, um, you know, you hear about um, nurses and, and doctors who kind of get burned out. That's, that's where I was. I was just ready to take on a, a role that, to be, to be honest, just was less, uh, had less responsibility. And I was ready to be home with my kids and, you know, be a mom and a wife again. And so I hit the job boards and found a, a regional director position at a company called Ventavia Research Group and interviewed over you know, the course of a couple of days and was offered a position and accepted in uh, the middle of August of 2020 is when I accepted the position. And I started with them in September of 2020. Uh, they were a, a, a small company. Um, they were working on lots of vaccine clinical trials, but specifically I, I was brought in for my experience in COVID, you know, like I said, I, I was uh, doing that before validating the PCR. I worked on the early stages of um, some remdesivir study, the remdesivir studies, and um, yeah, I mean, I was I was eager. You know, we talk about this a lot, like our journey, where we were then, and where where we are now. I'm I'm, I'm totally different in, in my way of thinking. <laughs> And so I was, I was eager to uh, bring my experience and my expertise to Ventavia and go into this company and audit um, the, the Pfizer clinical trial. They were a high enrolling site, meaning, you know, they, they've enrolled a bunch of patients into the clinical trial prior to my hiring. And so walking in on day one, my, my start date was, um, Oh gosh, September eighth of twenty twenty. So they were still, um, you know, in their phase three, still enrolling patients into Pfizer's COVID vaccine trial, and I, I had a lot of work to do <laughs> from day one. Right. Um. Yeah, that's amazing. When I think of the timeline, even like right, it was so right up to the deadline that they were just rushing this stuff out. It's almost kind of like a point of no return, right? It's like you've already set this thing in motion, 
and they won't accept no for an answer. Like, were they really going to say, oh, look, there's a little fly in the ointment. Let's stop, <laughs> you know, what we're doing here. It's like, nope, the contracts have been signed. Time to the go and make that money. That's right. The contracts were signed, you know, and and we'll we'll get into this a little bit later. But, you know, this um, so that your audience understands, and I'm sure most of them do, this contract between Pfizer is with the Department of Defense to right. develop. You kind of went right to the punchline, you know, right to the punchline. <laughs> but yeah, that's what happened, folks. I mean, if you're not familiar, Sasha Lachipova has covered this. And that's what emerged from the trial. Like, yeah, if we get right to the end of the movie, it was stated in court by Pfizer that they were acting exactly as instructed by the Department of Defense. I mean, the mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream media isn't interested in that. Sounds like a pretty enormous story to me. and seems like a pretty enormous fact for us to not be aware of it, considering what we've all been put through. So let's get to... Um, your experiences at the trial site. You witnessed all kinds of impropriety. You, you witnessed just incorrect procedure, basically, in, in a, a litany of ways. Um, you only yeah, worked of, for them for 18 of, days in, before your that termination. That includes weekends. Yes, right, I remember. I remember 18 days, including <laughs> weekends. And I'll, again, I'll kind of jump right to the punchline again, unfortunately, which is that you reported what you saw to the FDA, which was your job, and you lost your job then within six hours, which is just a very strange coinky dink, if you might <laughs> accept that to be so. I haven't heard that in a long time. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's definitely a coinky dink. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of what I saw at Mentavia was certainly. And also, just to clarify before you you get into this, I just want to yeah. also make clear what we made clear on Friday, which I think is just an incredible thing, which is that technically you're not really a whistleblower. You were doing your job, which what kind of atmosphere are we in where it's called whistleblowing when you describe what was not going correctly in a procedure and it was your job to do so? Yeah, that's, you know. At that point, I certainly didn't think of myself as, as a whistleblower. But, you know, but what I was going to say, you know, when I walked into Ventavia, a lot of what I uncovered or discovered, however you want to describe it, was just sloppy, certainly. Right. right. Um, but, you know, there there were there was conduct in this criminal, excuse me, in this clinical trial that should still to this day warrant a criminal investigation. Right. And it's not just Pfizer's clinical trial. You know, they have been a part of vaccine clinical trials for a decade or more. So there are other products, other vaccines, other drugs on the market that used data from this tainted clinical trial site. And the FDA still needs to walk in there and inspect them. Um but, but, you know, they won't. Um, they haven't. It's been, gosh, you know, September 25th of 2020 when I called them um, and then followed up that call with an email letting them know that, that, that they were, you know, there was fraudulent activity going on here. They're collecting data that's falsified, fabricated. They're mixing up lab samples between patients. They're not reporting adverse events that are happening 
I mean, the the, the list I have can, goes on and on. Um, but again, don't forget you know, the um, the the site manager who is never there, who is always supposed to be there, right? Oh yeah. So that's the that's the principal investigator. So in any clinical trial at any site, and there were 153 clinical tri- trial sites total for Pfizer's phase three trial, 131 of those in the United States. I was overseeing three of those, um, two directly. But um, the principal investigator is the study doctor that's overseeing the the safety, the welfare of every single one of these patients. And he's ultimately responsible for everything that happens there. He signs uh, a form that's called it's an FDA 1572. And that's his promise to the government that he's going to do and, and oversee these trials like he said he was. And he was rarely, rarely on site, Jeremiah. I mean, I, I met the man in, in, you know, those 18 days twice. And I'll tell you the first time um, that I met him, I was actually in the clinic walking down. And it, it was a very small clinic. We only had five rooms. And that was part of the problem um, is that we were enrolling. So many patients were there was so much fear about this virus that people were just lined up down the street to um, have the opportunity to, to participate in this in this trial. But we didn't have the space, nor did we have the staff that was the staff or staff that was qualified to right, run you said the staff trial. that was extracted from the retail industry and from the restaurant industry. Correct? That's right. That's right. And and I don't I don't mean to bring that up to, you know, belittle those people. No, no not at all. It's just a different wheelhouse, right? You wouldn't not send someone right out of a laboratory and say, Hey, go wait a table. I mean, they'd at <laughs> least need a training at the restaurant or probably a you know, a few days of training ideally. Well, you know, this these are medical procedures. When you're when you're mixing a a drug like Pfizer's vaccine, and that's always in quotes, right? Um you know, you, you just have to have some experience, not just walk in from the taco stand where you right. were working days before and start drawing up, mixing and injecting patients with an investigational product. I've just never seen anything like that. And I didn't even when, when she introduced herself to me, I, I was introduced to her as our secretary. I mean, she was working the front desk and then. In between that, answering phones and checking in patients, she was running in the back and drawing up medication. And wow. so when I saw her, when I saw her CV and and also noted that she had no medical background, that gave serious pause, obviously. Um, and, and I went directly to the owners of the company and I said, this is unacceptable. Um, we do not have even a registered nurse on site. Our medical doctor who's overseeing the safety of these patients is not here. Who is wow. going to give a dose of epinephrine, for example, if we have somebody who has an allergic reaction? And then that led me to go check on our our crash card, our emergency medications, which our epinephrine was expired. We had no Benadryl. Um, or excuse me, our our um we had we didn't have any epinephrine actually and the Benadryl was expired, bicarb was expired. The medications just were were 
out of date and we didn't we didn't even have um access to it it took me a while to actually hunt this crash cart down which you know should be readily available to me i should be able to look and find it and be able to to act quickly yeah Um, you know so so all these things besides the sloppiness i mean we were putting patients lives at risk and There, there was just no accountability, and you know when I'm I'm auditing the data, and I, I'm I actually watched somebody on my staff fabricate and falsify a blood pressure reading, and you may say, oh well that's it's just a well how many other patients did they did they lie about, you know, and it, it we're human we make mistakes and that's why you have audits and internal audits and sponsor audits and FDA audits. It, it's what should have been done, but instead of instead of doing that, my company wanted to hide the fact that we were unblinding patients. So in this trial, patients should not have known whether they received the active drug or a placebo, and that that wasn't the case here. Everybody knew what they were what they were. Um, you know, potentially knew what they were getting, the staff, the patients. And that that just injects a bias into the study that that you don't want. Um, It can affect for patients how they report their symptoms, and it can affect the doctors, the principal investigators, for example, um, when they're determining whether a patient needs to be evaluated for a symptom, whether they think that's COVID-related or injection related. So, I mean, it's just a bias you do not want in your trial. And when I discovered that around the 16th of September, I immediately recommended that Ventavia pause enrolling any more patients. And that was one of the things that, you know, in this trial that I, I thought was really strange was that Pfizer had direct contact with my staff like the, he, the the site liaison at Pfizer had the personal cell phone number of many of my staff and i i i just i i stopped that when i when i found that out um you know if if there's something that you need Pfizer you can call me for that you know my my staff are busy and um it, i just felt it was inappropriate to be contacting them on their on their personal devices yeah um, so that 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 was that was something that that stood out to me was just the relationship that they had um, with with this company. Um, <clears throat> but but back to the the sixteenth or seventeenth of September, whenever it was, when when I discovered that they were unblinding all the patients, I, I said we have to stop enrolling in this trial, and we need to contact Pfizer because per their protocol, so the the trial had this protocol. Think of it as like an instruction manual. You follow it to the T. Any deviation from that protocol, you have to report it to Pfizer. You have to report it potentially to a a regulatory um, body that's overseeing the trial. And then we need to look at it internally and find out why did you deviate from the protocol? Is it something in our standard operating procedures that we can change? Um, You know, so they, they wanted to hide that. And they actually started removing source documentation from patients' charts. Mm-hmm. And again, that that's just, it's, it's fraud. You cannot right. do that. 
Right. And so, you know, uh, after the call and the email to the FDA on on the 25th, it it literally took and this is what we think happened. We can't say this f- for for sure, and this is why discovery, one of the reasons why discovery in in this case would would be important is so that we can show that we I mean, we believe that when I contacted the FDA, that the FDA contacted Pfizer and Pfizer contacted Ventavia. And because of that, I I lost my job. Yeah, it certainly seems that way. Mm-hmm. So when they gave you their very vague explanation that you're not a good fit, just very generally speaking, if I'm not mistaken, that was just their vague, yeah. nonspecific Reason for termination. For terminating, right. So um, how long did it take you to deliberate of yourself and decide this this is something that justifies legal action? How, how long did it take for you to, to file your lawsuit after being terminated? Well, I was terminated in September. I filed the lawsuit in January, but it wasn't, um, it, it didn't take me long, just like it didn't take me long to decide to, you know, contact the FDA. You know, I did have a conversation with, with my husband the night before I contacted the FDA and I said, you know, hon, this, uh, this, this might cost me my job. Um, if Ventavia finds out that I contacted the FDA and, you know, basically called their baby ugly that's how my that's how my right. husband described right. it you know um right. you know you're, you're i was likely going to lose my job and i just i just felt so strongly about this data needing to be backed by integrity and um truthful collection of of data points and real research. And I'd never seen anything like this before, guys. I've been in research for going on 25 years now, and never have I seen such a disaster. I've, I've never been a part of a clinical trial that scared me until I, until I was overseeing these. Right. And I mean, let's not forget safe and effective was the mantra they repeated ad nauseum, which I pointed out on various occasions is a contradiction in terms because it's an emergency use authorization, meaning we do not have certainty in regard to the product. So to make this definitive statement safe and effective, it's not honest. It's it's not possible to say that with certainty. But um, when we hear about what you witnessed, it becomes really scandalous that we were being steered to take these products when well, no, safe and effective, safe and effective is a false claim, yeah, which is exactly. exactly why I filed my lawsuit. Exactly. And I say my, I say my lawsuit. This is, you know, we kind of joked about this earlier. This is a lawsuit that I filed. It's mine, I guess. Um, there is a part of it that is mine. And that is because I was wrongfully terminated and right. under False Claims Act statute. Um, there is a, um, a a component that is for whistleblower retaliation, and so that piece of it is mine. You know, if I am successful in in proving I was wrongfully terminated for contacting the FDA, that money is going into my bank account. Okay, um, right. I have. <laughs> Could you donate to the baseline? Could you become like our sponsor? <laughs> 
<laughs> of course. Um, but the but the the other part, the false claim, you know, like you said, this narrative safe and effective. I knew there was no way they could make that claim knowing that they used faulty data. Right. How how, how could they say that? And I was just I was flabbergasted. I was dumbfounded. Whatever however you want to pick your adjective. I just yeah. couldn't believe one that I'd contacted Pfizer that I tried to reach out to them to no avail. Um, interestingly enough, they they did contact me the day after I was fired, and then about a week later had their. Um, he's been described as their cleanup guy. Um, this guy named Mark Barnes. He's actually he's he's kind of a big deal in the legal 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 world. Um, but but that's how he was described to me as a, as a cleanup guy, and um, had him re- reach out to me and and make multiple phone in a surprising calls manner. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was the way that he did it, right? It was like back-to-back phone calls, text messages. Bypassing any proper procedure and contacting you, right? Yeah. Start, yeah startling like you just, when, you're with your, when you're with your family. Yeah, I felt like it was a way that, that he could intimidate me or Pfizer could intimidate me. Right. <clears throat> um, yeah, but, you know, the, the, the False Claims Act piece of this, it's the American people's tax dollar that I'm trying to get back and justice for the people that have been hurt by this, you know, that, that, that's what keeps me in this fight, um, movement, whatever. Oh, however you want to describe it. All of the above. I've met so many amazing people who, who, who've lost their family members, their children. And I just, I, I, I try to put myself in that position as hard as it is. I don't want to think about, Either either one of my children not being here. Um, yeah, likewise. Yeah, but like I've 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 been in a building with somebody describing trying to through their trying to catch their breath and through their tears describe how that feels. And I just I just I want justice. And part of me like part of me is mad too, I'll be honest. And you have every <laughs> right to be fired before. I've never been fired before, and I'm kind of pissed off about it. You know, right? Um, Especially considering you did absolutely nothing wrong. Actually, what you did wrong. was right. Yeah. What would yeah. have been wrong when, is if you didn't do what you did. That would have been a wrong action. You know, and I, I think back. Think back to the time. So this is September of 2020. It it re- it wasn't as hard then to do the right thing as it is now. But I think that there, you know, here we are all these years into it. And at some point, like silence is betrayal. And you have, you would, you just have to speak up. You know, would I, would I recommend being a whistleblower? Mm, I guess it depends on, on the day that you ask me. Um, right. You know, sure, cause it's, I, not a picnic. I, it's no picnic, certainly, you know, and I, I feel like I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Cause where I'm supposed to be and why, uh, you know, someone put me here because yeah. I have thick skin and yeah. I feel like I can handle it, but it is, it is not it's trying. Yeah. Yeah. And what's, what's hard is that, you know, I, I should have the full support of um, my colleagues in clinical research, doctors, regardless of whether or not you believe in this product safety and effectiveness but 
we're talking about clinical trial fraud here. Yeah. And you should support me no matter how you feel about the drug. I agree. Yeah, I mean, that's the irony. And, and actually, uh, attorney Sujata Gibson, who led. Oh, I love her. Oh, yeah. She's she's awesome. She's been a guest on the <laughs> base. she's from New York. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I had her on. And she was discussing the landmark victory that she was a part of on behalf yes. of the New York State healthcare workers. And she made exactly that point, which is if you're pro-vaccine and pro-medication and, and, and pro-pharma in this manner, as so many people are demonstrating themselves to be, well, that would sensibly require that you invest in the legitimacy of the regulatory process. It would mean that that these things are, are handled correctly and that you would want them to be handled correctly, not rushed through, not done in a fraudulent manner. Like they're missing the gist of their own political stance. Basically they're pro medical intervention, but you're not pro the process that assures that these products are safe. That doesn't make any sense. You should be at the forefront of demanding these things are regulated properly. If you're so pro vax as people um, have identified themselves to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's been, you know, it's been a long journey it, it, to date. <laughs> um, it, frustrating at times, but I, I, I just have the best support. My attorneys are amazing. And I'll tell you, it does feel really good when the, the time or two that I've been in court, just to be able to look Pfizer's attorneys in their eye. It feels it feels really good um, to know that I did the right thing and why um, I don't know. I just I, I can hold my head up high. I have integrity. I I feel like I'm a, a, an example of what integrity is. You know, I, I have integrity. That's it. There's nothing you know, I'm not a hero or anything like that. I just, I, I thought my job was important. I knew my job was important and I, I, I just have a little bit of integrity. That's all it takes. Well, that's incredible. <laughs> I, I'm, well, we're all very proud of you for that, honestly. And now I want to get into, um, the case itself mm -hmm. and the unbelievable events of the case. So I asked you on Friday, what went wrong in court? You had a rock solid case. I mean, there was nothing to dispute what you had seen firsthand. What what went down in court? It's it's rather incredible what Pfizer's legal defense was. Could you describe what occurred in court? Sure, sure. No, I think you made you you just made a, a perfect statement. You know, there was nothing to dispute. You're right, because it it wasn't Brooks story. I didn't just come with uh, an allegation. I came with documentation and it wasn't mine. It was Pfizer's. It was Ventavia's. I'm presenting their own fraud to you based on their documentation of it. So, um, yeah, the case was dismissed in March of 2023. Um, after we you know, went through all these different filings, these briefs, these meetings, I mean, just hundreds of hours of work, um, which by the way, my attorneys are doing pro bono. Like I, I haven't paid one cent towards this, this false claims act case. They've, they've just um, been amazing. That's commendable. Uh, 
Yeah. So, so commendable. And these, these, they're just, they're great. Um, they're just great. But he dismissed the case based on um, Pfizer's defense, which was that, um, you know, they, they didn't necessarily have to do a clinical trial that um, it, it's, how can I explain it? I'm trying to like come up with a good punchline and not use Sasha's. <laughs> yeah, right. It's all right. She's our friend. You can. Uh... Yeah, she is. And I love her so much too. Um, but they, they didn't have to conduct this clinical trial. The fraud that I saw was irrelevant. All they had to do was bring an FDA approved product or authorized rather authorized or approved product to market. Um, and, and that those were the terms. Right. So bring us bring us a product that gets FDA approval, and we, the DOD, will pay you for that. You don't have to follow any rules in the conduct of your clinical trial, in your manufacturing process, in the delivery of it. Just bring us something that has an FDA stamp. There you go. That was good. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And see, uh, one goal that I want to achieve through this program is I want the listener to be able to recapitulate the story of Brooke Jackson versus Pfizer in its basic outline to other concerned citizens and other parties of interest. We should all be able to describe the problem of what happened here because it's fundamental. And something has frustrated me. You could read about my opinions about the social atmosphere we're in and various Substack articles I've written, but it's so ironic and so annoying honestly that people such as myself have been labeled conspiracy theorists for doing the opposite for pointing to nuts and bolts things to you know pointing to actual factual information that can't be disputed can't be refuted whatsoever it's like once we put the name calling aside is anyone going to care to address these facts right that, you know it's like and it's kind of, it's interesting because it's like, you know, when you call someone a conspiracy theorist, and I don't have a problem with the label, honestly, sure, I'll theorize about conspiracies, what's the big deal? But, you know, it's it's funny because when you use that term, you're calling someone a freak, basically. But as I pointed out, it's freakish to call everyone a freak, even when they present credible information or things that should just be considered in an intelligent manner it's like no you're the one going afield using these terms to label people when these are factual things that we all need to just take the time to comprehend the implications of this. absolutely you call me a conspiracy theorist and an anti-vaxxer and anti-government like it's a bad thing <laughs> right and that's the other thing as well is that you know you're a person who by no means was a quote-unquote anti-vaxxer you believed in pharmaceutical intervention up to a, a certain point. You were a member of the industry that, as we were discussing before we went on air, you participated in trials for products that saved people's lives. You you believed in the work that you did. So, yeah, you know, I've it, seen it do. I've seen research um, do amazing things. You know, I I've, I feel like when I look back. The best part of, of my career was when I worked in liver and kidney transplant, you know, to, to see, um, you know, just the 
the process of somebody losing a loved one and then, you know, giving the gift of life to somebody else. I mean, in, in, in the research setting, it was, it was amazing. And, um, I'll, I'll, I'll always be thankful for, for that time there. And, and like you said, I, I was never, um, really for or against anything. I just felt like, you know, you had this relationship with your provider and if you needed a medication, maybe there's one for you. Maybe you need to have, uh, you know, a, a tough look in the mirror and make some lifestyle changes. Um, you know, but, but never have I been through anything that's been mandated before. So that was, that was really something. Yeah. And that's eventually what, what made me um, not necessarily break the, the seal, because when I filed this case, because it's a Federal False Claims Act case, um, and I was alleging misbranding that the product wasn't as safe, wasn't as effective as claimed because of fraudulent data that was used. And some people may say, well, you know, there were 153 clinical trial sites. Your site only enrolled approximately 1,000 patients of the total 44,000. What does it matter? Well, it, it matters for a couple of reasons. One, um, if if this type of <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it anymore. If this type of conduct was was happening at a little clinical trial site here in Texas, three of them, what else was happening at the other hundred and fifty sites? Right? It 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 made me beg the question. You know, if it's happening here, where else is it happening? And and two, the emergency use authorization was based on 170 patients out of that 44,000 who developed COVID-like symptoms, at least one of them, and had a positive PCR test. That's it. Right and an average of two months of, of safety data, okay? So 170 people changed the world. Wow. That's it. And then, and then it came down to mice, right, for the next rounds of, of boosters. They said, oh, well, it worked so great the first time. Let's just test this on a couple of mice and call it a day. Yeah, and that's what's, you know, what people don't understand. Because my... my, my um, you know, research is is complicated, um, not just the conduct of these trials, but the, the regulatory um, side of it is a is a whole other um, area of, of that you really have to have expertise and to fully understand. But but like you were saying, the because of the emergency use authorization, um, the the safe and effective, you know, they're they're able to base future studies on what we call a bioequivalent. So, you know, they don't have to necessarily do these large scale, you know, gold standard randomized double blind trials anymore. They can just base it off of, you know, animal data or, you know, smaller smaller studies. So, that that is a huge problem and I think eventually when when we get there, get past this, is it really safe? Is it really effective? Congress has got to make some changes to you know, um, to our regulatory standards. I mean, we, we, we've got to do something and there's others out there in public health and, you know, in the space that are smarter than I am and, and can, you know, come up with better ideas, but I, I have some in just the conduct of the trial. Right. And that, that's, um, another, a whole other animal, you know, and how the data is collected, um, from patients and then how it gets to, 
Pfizer, for example, and then how Pfizer gets that data to the FDA to review. It is, um, it's scary. It's scary how, how um, the FDA determines a product's safety and um, efficacy. It would, it would really blow your mind if we had time. I would go into, I would go into more detail, but you know, anybody can look it up on the FDA's website. They rely on the data from a pharmaceutical company to determine a product's safety and efficacy. Wow. Yeah. It's right there. It's right there in black and white. And right. so if, if uh, the FDA does not go to a clinical trial site to in- inspect what data points the site has collected and then compare that to what Pfizer for example, has reported the FDA will never know the truth. Right. They will never know. Right. I mean, agency capture is one of the terms, one of the many terms I've become familiar with throughout this whole ordeal. And it's a really fundamental problem in our society. And it seems worst of all in the pharmaceutical industry, which is something that pertains to our social right? Right. When you and I think the pharmaceutical, you know, what we've learned um, through this experience um, has kind of opened our eyes to other places it's happening. Yeah, um, it really is systemic. And, well, and, and also, as you yeah, were speaking, I've been thinking this the entire time as you're describing this. You know, I, I come from a, the experience of being a performing artist. I'm an electric bass player. I've been on a lot of stages. I perform with a lot of different bands. I know. I listen to your music. Oh yeah, well thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> and you and you know, and it's like a lot of the times you're in a big production and people don't realize, you know, what happens behind the scenes, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's generally known. Hey, you know, maybe police officers, for example, don't always speak in a professional manner in their locker room. You know, maybe you saw a band and you think everything is perfectly well rehearsed. Well, no, one of the songs in the set, they just rehearsed it right before they jumped on stage or, you know, there's any number of kind of loose things that go on in human environments. And we, we would like to think that's not happening in a medical setting, you know, as it pertains to medical products that will be administered. We'd like to think that little looseness that happens in a locker room or whatever wouldn't happen, but it sounds just very loose, very shoddy. And then, it gets the stamp of approval as this perfectly legitimate thing that occurred. I mean, mm. how do, how are people not upset by that? We should all be upset because something that's also uh, occurred to me throughout this whole experience is, wow, we, we base this whole system on trust. Mm. I walk into an office. I don't know who the doctor is. I don't know what substances are in this needle that's going to be injected into me, into my child. I trust that the regulatory process that brought this product into my the, the lives of my family that that it's been regulated properly and to find out that it's not that there are really concerning things going on there are unprofessional things there are things that compromise the data as it pertains to this product how could we not be concerned by this I mean, are we just zombies? More like, than just concerned. Right, right, People exactly. More should than be afraid. concerned. Afraid. People should Scared. be afraid. 
absolutely right. You know, but I just wonder, I, can, can we snap out of it, everyone? Can we please wake up and understand how serious this is? Can we stop with the name calling, the red coat versus blue coat nonsense and just say, hey, we are all members of a society and we need to take responsibility for these things for the sake of future generations. If not for ourselves, please, for the sake of future generations, for, for goodness sake. Well, since you brought up color, red and blue, I'll bring up another two, and that's black and white. Mm. And it's either right or it's wrong. It's black or it's white. And that's how I saw, um, you know, what, what Pfizer was doing, what Ventavia was doing, what Icon was doing was, was wrong. It was so black and white. And to again, me. again, have- just to specify for this recording, because we specified in the live recording, recording, Icon, certainly not to be confused with I can the informed consent action network. That's right. I can good icon bad. And, you know, through the years, um, and maybe even before, there's there's always so much research that you can do, but icon, I C O N, is now a government what do they call them? Um, a strategic partner. Um, and pandemic preparedness. Frightening sounding sounding moniker. I'll tell you, the research that I have done into the contract that ICON had with the Department of Defense in um, developing this drug, you know, they they lost their contracts. And I can't help but think that, you know, this this lawsuit that we have going on is is part of the reason that they, they lost they lost it. Um, they lost this contract, but gained another. And that was something else, too, that I, I kept warning um, the Department of Justice about as this case remained under seal for 14 months, was that Ventavia is participating in other vaccine trials. Hello, somebody please listen to me. There are people that are that are losing their unborn babies because of Ventavia's carelessness or yes or you know maybe it's the drug that's being injected into them you know um, we warned the DOJ about uh, Ventavia participating in Pfizer and GSK's new RSV vaccines that have recently gained approval Ventavia participated in those trials they've participated in um, pneumococcal vaccine uh, studies, and those drugs are currently available on the market. Several of our childhood vaccines that are currently on the CDC's immunization schedule. Um, so somebody should get out to Ventavia pronto um, and, and and see what's going on. And I just I, I I am shocked that it that it hasn't happened. But I'll tell you, um, you know, moving. Moving forward with what happened with with this lawsuit, you know, Pfizer's defense was all they had to do was, you know, get FDA approval. It didn't stipulate in the contract that they had to follow any regulatory guidelines or, you know, federal acquisition, (laughs) federal acquisition regulations. You know, we didn't have to do that. So that that was their defense. And the judge, based on um, what we believe is a misinterpretation of the contract, because it's it's wordy, um, you know, it is with the Department of Defense again for the 
you know, prototype vaccine that they developed. Um, and that, that, yeah, maybe what Brooke said is true. They've never, Pfizer nor the Department of Justice have ever come out and said, we believe Brooke is telling the truth or, or we, we, we don't believe her. She's lying. It's not true. They've never said one way or another um, or made a comment about um, what I presented, the evidence that I presented, only that if, if it was fraud, it was just a little bit of fraud and that's okay. Right. It's immaterial to the decision that the FDA made because what's, what's, you know, 3% of the overall uh, 44,000 patients, you know, it wouldn't have, you know, those patients couldn't have affected the, you know, efficacy of the products. But again, so your audience understands that's based on 44,000 people. How many patients from Ventavia are, are made up of the 170 that actually determine this 95% effectiveness. And right. that data has never been, re- ever, ever been released. We don't, we, we, we don't know. <laughs> or maybe it's been, maybe, maybe it is now. I just, I haven't, I really haven't been online to look at that here in a while. I'm um, with yeah. Christmas coming up and Thanksgiving and all that, but maybe, maybe there's a report now through, through, now that we know that the ICANN FOIA production is complete, we have yeah. all the data that was used to support uh, the FDA's decision from Pfizer. Um, but that that was the reason for the dismissal. Um, you know, maybe it was fraud, but it was just a little bit. Um, and the contract said that we didn't have to follow any of these um, protocol deviations or this fraud <laughs> um, that, that was... Was that made clear to the American people? No, it was not. (laughs) No, no. Not at all. So um, we are reaching the home stretch here. Of course, in our live uh, conversation, we had two delightful callers who were very encouraging and positive. Um, We had Jerry from Michigan. So I want to shout out Jerry and I want to shout out Sandy from Westchester. Thank you for I was going to say Sally. I was close. Yes. Thank you both very much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. But um, since we have a couple minutes and I'm not in studio, so we're not taking calls. um, What can you tell us? What do you know about the new lawsuit now with Texas, the state of Texas (laughs) versus Pfizer? What do you know about that? Do you uh, do you take encouragement from, from that? being uh, put on the table, Texas versus Pfizer. Maybe they'll have better luck than Brooke Action Jackson. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say that this, um, I, I'm, we're not out of the game yet. And I, I keep saying my, my, my. It's our lawsuit. It's the American people's lawsuit. Um, you know, we were dismissed in, in March. We filed a motion for the judge to reconsider his ruling and he did that in in August. So he reversed the dismissal, and that really that really took us back to square one. So he allowed us um, with his decision to amend our complaint and add some additional uh, claims that were not, uh, in his mind, highlighted in our original complaint. 
Um, we, we were able to bring forward information about the suppression of alternative uh, therapies such as ivermectin, hydrochloroquine. Um, we have other people that have come forward that have worked at clinical tri- the clinical trial sites, other ones besides mine, patients that have come forward that were participants that have been harmed. So we were able to, to amend the complaint, make it more robust, highlight the, you know, um, flaws that the judge pointed out. Uh, Pfizer has motion to dismiss, obviously, and we have a response or we have a reply. Sorry, there's like a, a, you file, then you have a reply, then a response, and then the judge will make his decision. So we will likely have oral arguments. Again, I'll be able to look Pfizer in the eye or their attorneys um, rather probably around March, um, I would say. And then we um, will wait for the judge to make uh, uh, his decision. Um, Hopefully with, um, you know, if he, if he follows fact and he follows law, we'll be able to move into discovery Uh, and our potential trial date. I think I looked this up last time we were talking is, um, in 2025, if if we make it that far, I don't believe that the DOD nor Pfizer will ever allow us to get into discovery, because you can imagine um, what what that uh, will uncover. I, I suspect, I know it will uncover more fraud. You know, we need access to a lot of the data. I want to know when the FDA called. Well, I, we know, right? Um, but I want to prove that the FDA. Um, got got a hold of Pfizer and Pfizer fired me. I want um, accountability for that. But so so fingers crossed everybody. We um, I, I do upload all the case documents on a website that I created just for that um, to keep everybody updated. It's iambrookjackson.com and you can read any of the, the case filings there. And by the way, it's it's Brooke as in B R O O K. It's not Brooke with the E on the end. So thank you, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, Brooke without the E. So I am BrookeJackson.com. And you know, to answer your question, I'm I'm encouraged by um, the the Paxton Texas lawsuit. You know, there's a a couple of um, I guess I could I have a couple of comments. One, um, attorneys general have this incredible authority to intervene in our lawsuit. So any attorney general from any state can 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 help us in this fight against Pfizer and intervene um, as a state. There are also about 30 state statutes that have state false claims act statutes. And I, I plan on bringing a state case in Texas and in Florida. Those are, you know, two of the states that have really been, you know, uh, um, outspoken with, with regard to COVID policy, et cetera. And right. uh, then maybe uh, Louisiana and Missouri would be next. Um, but, but Paxton, you know, my, my lawsuit makes my, our lawsuit makes, um, makes similar claims to, to his. Um, 
So I, I encourage him to reach out to my attorneys. We've been trying to get a hold of him um, for quite some time. He'll slide into my DMs and ask me to retweet some of his stuff, but he'll never return my attorney's calls. So I'm kind of like, eh, I'm not, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, I, I'm just not sure. Um, I, I, I people were a little more reciprocal in that sense, you know? Yeah. I mean, I support anybody who's, who's speaking out against this fraud. And you being um, on this show is proof of that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, anybody. Um, that's sweet of you to say. Um, you know, I, I've had, uh, you know, my thoughts on, you know, for example, Senator Johnson, you know, I, I, I'm just so thankful for the platform that he's given to people that have been hurt by this to just tell their story because that's all they want to do is tell their story to have some accountability and to get some help with, you know, with their medical care. And yeah. my question is, while I think, while I thank you, sir, can you do more? Yeah. Yeah. Can, something can, I've known, you, you know, it's more? funny. I've, I've been aware of this phenomenon for so long because I'm an event producer and I, I bring musicians and, and put showcases together. Well, I have over the years. And, you know, I, I, it's a tough thing to balance your emotions because you wind up getting frustrated at the people who showed up yeah. to help. You're like, you showed up now do more. Yeah. But you don't have yeah. anger at the people who didn't show up at all. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, how do we, how do we keep these people in here encouraged, but get them to do more, please. <laughs> you know? No, I mean, that's me for sure. And I thank you for pointing pointing that out because I, I i lose sight of that sometimes but i just but I it's a real frustration i felt it, it you know and it's a real problem too like we actually do need you to do more it's not it's like you know it's the person who just kind of gives them a pat on their, themselves a pat on the back for showing up to yoga class it's like well now do the yoga well <laughs> now push yourself <laughs> don't like you know cheat yeah, but i'm like how much more well, how much more do you guys need to see we have you know, this case in federal court claiming fraud in the clinical trials. You have Paxton, you know, with his deceptive practice. You have the VAERS system. The VAERS. Which they've you know, completely ignored. I mean, it's unbelievable. Pfizer's it's a five-alarm fire and they're not responding. Pfizer's own data, you know, showing that they were suppressing adverse events. They were suppressing deaths. So to get to a certain point so they could claim a certain, you know, um, efficacy. We have all of the, oh gosh, there's so many papers um, over the last couple of weeks that have come out. There's a, a, a Mulroney at all. Um, you know, the problems just keep piling up and... You know, there's the DNA contamination, the SV40 promoter. I mean, one thing I wonder, I, this is a little kind of dream of mine. And I brought this up with Steve Kirsch in my discussion with him. Um, and I don't know, you know, if you'd have any thoughts about this, but what is preventing us? When I say us, I mean the medical freedom movement. And perhaps your case specifically would be something we could rally around. Why can't we form a legal dream team? Why isn't Aaron Siri also representing you? Like, I thought generally as a kid, I thought, you know, you have a lawyer and your lawyer represents you in court. And then there was the O.J. Simpson dream team. I'm like, wait a second, you could have like a bunch of lawyers representing you. Why don't we have that for the medical freedom movement? You know, why don't we get a, a nice team of superhero lawyers who are like the Avengers rolling up their sleeves and just 
fixing this stuff on behalf of the American people. Like, I wonder, is that possible in some way? Can we do that? You know, I actually asked that very question to, um, I don't want to call her out, but somebody, somebody very high up in children's health defense. Mm. And I probably had had a couple martinis too many, but I was just so frustrated because like you said, like what, why isn't Aaron Siri helping me? I've known Aaron since 2021. I can't answer that question. Maybe he doesn't think that he can. I don't know, but I was frustrated. I was at this point and I I asked her, why are we not? Where's the dream team? This is like medical freedom inside baseball here, guys. (laughs) Like, sorry to be like gossiping (laughs) in any way, but yeah, I want to get Aaron Siri on my airwaves one day and I'll ask him directly. Um, but not yeah. just to put it all just on Aaron. You know, he's just no. a high-profile attorney. I mean, I just I would love to see a nice team. I'd like to see them stand and he's frickin', there. He's freaking brilliant. You know, oh, yeah. like, he's, he's phenomenal. The dude is amazing. I mean, I I like I said, I've I've known him since 2021. I can't wait for stuff to be you know complaints to be made public that were written by Aaron Siri and and his firm. Um, they're exciting to read. Is is just he's he's fantastic. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but back to the question that I asked, and and it was answered in s- sort of a way that made sense. And it was that you know if we put this whole dream team together, think about you know the opposition, whatever they're whatever you want to call them. You know, we're we're like basically one target. Uh, okay. Right. We don't want to be standing all in one place. Yeah. And I guess I thought at the time I was like, okay, I guess that makes sense. But you know, I'm, I'm with you. And that's, that's, that's a, another point I'll just make really quick. Um, Robert Barnes and Warner Mendenhall, who, who are the, the leads in, um, on my, on my team of attorneys, you know, they, they, they're kind of doing something like that, especially, especially Warner, you know, he, he had this idea last year to have a conference uh, in Atlanta for just the attorneys. So, I mean, anybody could go, I was there. Um, We had, you know, just people that were in the area that were interested that came. So it wasn't just for attorneys, but, you know, gather together, let's talk about what's working, what's not working, how can we form some sort of alliance and, you know, help each other out, you know, have some um, shared database or something and, you know, where you can post questions and get really quick answers if you have a brief due or something. Um, but but Warner's doing that and is, um, he actually is, has started, it's called um, Freedom Health Council. He's an outstanding um, spokesperson, by the way. He's, he's uh, so good. I know. I know when I, um, Warner's definitely the heart of my case. I've, I've listened to him take on, you know, and, and that's what we need. We need more attorneys, gosh. Um, but I, I've listened to him try like these really small, which they're small, but they're not insignificant, like employment cases. Somebody, you know, there's this one story I'll tell you guys really quick. Um, there was somebody that had worked for this hospital system for about 20 years, and she had an autoimmune disorder <clears throat> and had a medical exemption from 
the flu shot for as long as she'd worked for this hospital. Her doctor did not want her to take any sort of vaccination. So she had this exemption on file when when um, the COVID policy um, became mandatory. She thought, well, I already have this, so it, it would cover that, right? So her medical exemption would have covered the flu shot, would have covered the COVID shot. But she thought, you know, I, I, I'm also a very religious person. And based on those convictions, I, I don't want to get, you know, the COVID shot. I can't anyways, but I want to also file an exemption for my my religious rights. And so she did that through her hospital system. And because she filed a religious and a medical exemption, it canceled them both out. Wow. And they fired her. And wow. that was the hospital policy. How ridiculous! And, and, and you know, and, and how outrageous! You know, this whole thing of reviewing your religious exemptions. Like, no, that's my religion. End of story. It's not up to you to determine. Oh well, I don't, I'm going to decide whether you believe in your religion or not. Who, what so, kind of? Who, by what authority? Um, you know, I have a friend okay. actually who works in in a science laboratory who's who's a you know research professional herself who didn't want the shot, hasn't taken the shot. Um, has witnessed terrible side effects in some of her co-workers who have taken the shot. And, you know, she had one of the best answers of all where she just said, yeah, I, I can't take this for religious reasons. And they said, oh, what religion do you practice? And she just said, a voice from God told me. Mm-hmm. No particular religion. God told me in my head, don't take the shot. <laughs> so it's like, Should that's, you know, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, I, I don't need to cite religious texts. Uh, maybe I don't believe in anything in particular. I just believe in God. So um, it's been a great conversation again, Brooke. Um, I thank you so much for for joining us. Um, it really is our honor. I hope to have you on the airwaves again sometime soon. How can people follow you on Twitter? Um. Oh gosh, it's it's the same as as my my websites. I am Brooke Jackson. I'll tell right. you how I got that handle one day, Jeremiah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I I thank you so much for being on the air with us, and I thank you so much for your bravery. And you know, we have your back. We're super inspired by your courage. And yes, this is the people's lawsuit. We are, uh, you know, we are the spear, and you're the tip of the spear at this moment so we thank you for that (laughs) well thank you for having me on and allowing me to to tell this story you know i I feel like we were on a roll there i could keep going and going but i I really know you know we've already exceeded the one hour of our program and i hope our guys appreciate that this is a baseline speed up the speed up the the playback yeah normally we're confined by being on live radio so we went over time a little bit today but um this friday before i forget to mention we have the great ryan christian of last american vagabond and actually go back and check his interview he did yeah he's a really good friend of our program and he did two outstanding interviews with brooke if you want to really get kind of immersed in this because i just think it's so important that we understand what transpired in regard to your case and make it so that among at least the concerned citizens were all clear on the basic description of what transpired in the Brooke Jackson versus Pfizer case. It's of paramount importance. And I think well, anyone, anyone who's taken the time to listen to this program should agree to that, I would say. And I, I was just going to add that that um, you'll enjoy listening listening to Ryan. He's, he's just he's a great researcher. Smart and, as a whip. <laughs> 
And the one that taught me to question everything. Yeah, exactly. He's a, he's as sharp as a tack. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to my chat with him this Friday. And yeah, please stay in touch, Brooke. Our, our warm regards, my family's warm regards to your family. Thank and, you. Uh, hopefully we'll uh we'll speak soon and hopefully there'll be some good news for our team soon stay tuned yeah exactly we'll have a wonderful weekend brooke thank you very much you too thank you have a great whatever you're getting into next (laughs) bye It's a thing, it is something that you do. 